Hello and welcome to Virtual Roundtables Live, the broadcast that brings business leaders together to discuss and debate the latest industry topics and trends. Now over to today's host. Thank you very much, Martin. Um, so as Martin says, yeah, my name is Carla Rivershaw. I am Head of Marketing at Turtle. And I'm here today to talk about why I think everybody in this room uh, should be killing the PDF. And you're probably wondering, what exactly do I have against the PDF? Well, uh, quite a lot of things, actually. Um, so I'm not sure how many people know, but the PDF was actually invented in 1991. And yet it is still something that we in market marketing today use as a primary way to publish our content online. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I'm going to take a look at this in a little bit more detail. And to get the story going, I want to take a look at a parallel area where we could potentially uh, learn some lessons. And this is the um, obvious area of British cycling. So um, British cycling, for about a period of 100 years, we were in a really bad place. These days, we obviously have people like Chris Froome and Bradley Wiggins and um, Mark Cavendish, but it wasn't always like that. And there was a very definite moment in time when that changed. So what I'm gonna have a look at now is what changed and is there anything we can learn in marketing that we could apply to our content? So 100 years of hurt. So there was this period of about 100 years, like I said, between about 1900 and 2000, where we were really bad at cycling here in Britain. We were so bad that we only won one Olympic gold medal in 1908. We won the Tour de France a total of zero times. Um, we were so bad, actually, that manufacturers were embarrassed to have a Brit riding their bike because we were just so bad, it was bad for their business. But then in 2003, things started to change when this guy, David Brailsford, came along. And he was appointed the uh, director of performance. And he came in with this idea of marginal gains. And basically what marginal gains says is that if you break everything down that goes into riding a bike, start to improve it in incremental ways and then bring it back together, you start to see really big improvements. So for those of you who like something a little bit visual, like I do, we have a, a graph here. And what you can see with this blue line is the improvement over a 365 day period, where we improve by just 0.5% each day. So if we start on a baseline of one, over the period of a year, you see a six-fold improvement. So this is the concept of marginal gains, making small incremental changes each day to start to see really big improvements in the end. So what happened? What did um, David Brailsford do? So he started to do things like getting the insides of the vans that transported the bikes um, painted white so that they were able to detect if there was any dirt or microscopic pieces of dust that would uh, impact on the aerodynamics of the bikes. He introduced things like heated shorts so that the, um, the muscles were at optimal temperature on the riders so that they were able to perform better. They also started to rub alcohol on the outside of the tires so that they would grip better with the, uh, the roads that they were cycling on. And he even went as far as to bring in a group of GPs to teach the cycling team how to wash their hands properly so that they wouldn't get sick as often and therefore could train more and perform better. So what kind of results did we see from this? Well, I think the results really do speak for themselves. So after David Brailsford came on board, 
We won 178 World Championship gold medals, 66 Olympic and Paralympic gold medals. We've won five Tour de France um, wins in, in a period of six years. And we went from being right at the bottom of the medal table to being number three in the all-time medals table. So this is really the most successful run in cycling history. And it really does show that if you start to analyze things individually and then you bring them back together, you really can see huge benefits. So I think we would probably all love to be able to achieve that with our content. If we were able to improve on a daily basis by just 0.5% and at the end of a year see a six-fold improvement, that would be amazing, right? But I guess what I'm going to try and um, show you today is that using the PDF is really going to prevent us from being able to do this. And there are three areas in particular where I think uh, it's, it's really holding us back. So the first area I want to have a look at is um, production. Now, if we think about production of content in a business, particularly a large organization, I can speak from experience having previously worked at Thomson Reuters, it typically goes something like this. So you will normally have quite a broad spectrum of people who are responsible for coming up with ideas for the content that they want to create. And those ideas then get channeled into a central function that are responsible for bringing those ideas to life. So normally those people, whether it's an external agency or an internal agency, will have access to specialist uh, knowledge and specialist skills and probably specialist tools such as InDesign to be able to create that content. Now the problem with that way of working is that it often creates this bottleneck. It's really, really difficult to get your content through. And often you are waiting a really, really long time for that content to be produced. It's also often very, very expensive, particularly if you're working with external agencies. And it's just incredibly cumbersome, you know, particularly if you're providing feedback and there's this kind of back and forth, back and forth until eventually you um, arrive at the final product. So this is what we call a centralized model. And if there's one thing that technology is really good at, it's decentralizing things. So to help illustrate, illustrate this point a little bit further, I'm going to take a look at an um, uh, unrelated area, and that is the area of Transport for London. So Transport for London is actually, in the last 10 to 15 years, has been a really fantastic example of how you can go from a centralized model to a decentralized one. And if we think about the process of buying a ticket for the London Underground in 1863, which is when the London Underground um, was launched, it went something like this. So you would go to a London Underground station, you would go to a ticket office, you'd speak to somebody there, uh, they would issue you with a ticket. Now that's a fully centralized model because you have to be in a very specific place to speak to a very specific person in order to get your ticket. So things started to change a little bit in 1932 with the introduction of ticket machines. So now you're able to go to an underground station, go to a machine instead to get your ticket. So you no longer have to speak to somebody, but it's still very much a centralized model because you still have to go to the ticket machine in order to get your ticket. Then in 2003, there was the introduction of the Oyster card. So now this is when things really start to change because suddenly anybody who has an Oyster card in their pocket is in theory, their own ticket office. 
And then in 2003, it went one step further with the introduction of being able to pay with contactless cards. So now, whether or not you realized it, if you had a contactless card in your pocket, you were, in theory, your own Transport for London ticket office. So even somebody walking in the Outer Hebrides um, who never plans to come to London is technically their own um, Transport for London ticket office. And now, of course, with things like Apple Pay, it goes even further. So you could be on you know, a continent on the other side of the world. And again, you could, in theory, be your own TfL ticket office. So the Transport for London has come a really long way in, in the last 100 years from being something that's fully centralized to now being something decentralized. So what are the benefits of this? Well, for one, it's a lot faster. So they did some tests when the Oyster card was originally launched, where they tracked to see how many people went through the ticket barriers um, using an Oyster card. And what they discovered is during peak times, there was actually a 30 to 40% increase in the number of people that were able to go through the ticket barrier. It's, it can also be cheaper as well. So providing you're tapping in and tapping out when you um, go through the barriers, you're guaranteed to get the best fare. And it's also just a lot easier too, because you don't have to work out exactly which ticket you need to get. All you need to do is swipe in, off you go, figure out as you're going exactly what you need to do and where you need to go. So a decentralized model which empowers us leads to better outcomes. So what if we were able to achieve this with our content? What if anybody could produce designer quality content fast? What if you could sit at your desk, you could create this beautiful, engaging, interactive content without necessarily having design skills? So I actually have an example for you of um, a company that has managed to achieve this. Uh, we work with a company, Cisco, um, which I'm sure you're all familiar with. And uh, when we first started to work with them, uh, we began working with quite a small part of their, um, their company, 25 people at their Bedfont Lakes office, which is actually just down the road from here. And um, the situation that they were in was very similar to the one that I described around you know, production in large companies. So they were essentially coming up with these ideas for the content they needed to create and farming that out to external agencies and also some internal agencies as well. And the challenges that they were facing was really, really long lead times to get this content created. So they would often cite weeks, if not months, to actually get this content created. And sometimes it was so bad that by the time the content came back, it was already out of date. So they had to go back again and revise it. Um, it was also incredibly expensive, particularly because so much of their content was being externally um, outsourced. And it was just generally quite frustrating for people. People felt like they just weren't able to get done what needed to be done. So what they were able to do was to bring this content creation in-house and they were able to empower their entire team to be able to start creating this content themselves. And the interesting thing was, is it really changed the role of the design team. So they went from being this bottleneck, having to do all of the grunt work, to now being more of like a clearinghouse where they were able to review the content the marketing team was creating, provide some feedback such as this image on page three should be changed to this or we need you to move that section to there. But it really helped to start moving things a lot, lot faster. And also it, was, it saved them so much money with what they were doing. So I think they saved hundreds of thousands of pounds just in the first six months of moving to this decentralized model. And of course, it was empowering the team. So the team just generally felt a lot happier and more content with what they were doing. So 
This is an example of what can be achieved, the benefits that can be gained from moving to a decentralized model. But unfortunately, due to the inherent nature of the PDF, it makes it very, very, very difficult to do that. So the second area I'd like to have a look at is experience. And I'm sure everybody in this room is very familiar with the stat that more and more of um, the experience is taking place online, more of the, the buyer journey is happening online. So I think at the moment it's about 75% of the, of the journey takes place online. And so when we think about that, we think actually um, so much of that um, sales process is happen happening independently now. Um, a lot of more self-education is taking place. So it's really, really important that we ensure that the experience that we are giving people online is of premium quality. So when we think about the PDF, I'd like to have a look at some of the, um, the areas that we would consider when thinking about experience. So for instance, is the experience of reading a PDF interactive? No, it really isn't. It's basically a piece of paper. Um, you know, you could print off a PDF and it would be exactly the same experience that you have. There are no videos in there. There are no live polls. There's um, no interactive graphs. It's just a very static document to read. Um, is it responsive? Is it a joy to read on your mobile phone? No, it isn't. I'm not sure how many people have tried to read a PDF um, document on your phone, but typically you have to sort of zoom in and zoom out to actually see what it says. It doesn't respond to the different devices you're reading it on. Does it offer live updates? No, it doesn't. It's basically a dead document. So once you publish that PDF, um, it's, it's basically, it's out there for the world to have. So if you realize there's this massive typo or you need to change it, but somebody's already downloaded it, it's too late. It's already out of your control. So there are a lot of issues with the PDF. And when we think about experience, I'm going to have a look at a few more stats here. Um, first of all, according to Cisco, by 2020, which is just around the corner, 80% of touch points will be digital. And also, according to Forbes, they did a survey with uh, Global 500 executives. 90% of them said that B2B is the new, um, experience is the new B2B battleground. So when we think that more and more of this experience is taking place online, you know, we have to make sure that the experience people are having online is fantastic. And of course, 72% of businesses are now saying that customer experience is their top priority, according to Forrester. So to help illustrate this point a little bit further, I'm going to have a look at another kind of unrelated area, and that's the world of banking. And hopefully everybody here is familiar with Monzo. But for anybody who isn't, basically Monzo have looked to really disrupt the high street banking sector. So what you're seeing is, um, and I'm sure many people here have experienced this, for instance, you want to set up a new bank account with a high street bank and you might contact them and say, hey, I want to do this. And they say, yes, that's no problem. Uh, can you come in in three weeks time at 10.15 on a Wednesday? And you're like, well, that's not very convenient. Now with Monzo, what you can do is you can go onto their website and then within three minutes, you've opened your bank account and by 9am the following morning, they will have issued you with your um, bank card. So it's a much more streamlined process. It's convenient, it's interactive. It feels really personal as well. They've actually sort of made banking fun, if that's possible. And um, if you look at some of the really cool things that they've done, for instance, 
Uh, they, I think last year, probably about this time last year, BA had one of their many situations where they lost a whole bunch of card details. And all of the high street banks were scrambling around trying to figure out what do we do with the situation. Basically, what Monzo did is they had a look through their customer records. They identified anybody who'd made a transaction with BA recently. And they sent them an email to say, hey, um, this situation has happened. Just so you're aware, we've issued you a new card in the post, which will arrive by 9 a.m. tomorrow. Um, you can continue using your card, but just please make sure once your new card arrives that you, you know, get rid of your old card. So that's just a really fantastic experience and something that the high street banks could have done, but they just haven't been doing it. So how does this translate? So having a look at their um, Twitter feed, what you can see is just pure adoration from the customers. They're going on there to say how much they love their bank. And Monzo are, are really great at sort of providing this sort of fantastic experience. So for instance, you can get paid a day early. And so if you get um, your salary on a particular day each month, then Monzo will just give you your, your salary a day early. I mean, it's so simple. And again, something that high street banks could have been doing for years, but they haven't been. But then if you have a look at the high street banks <laughs> and what's going on on their Twitter feed, um, what you see is a very different story. So you see very unhappy customers who are complaining to their bank about the awful experience that they're having. So again, going back to the fact that so much of the experience is now online, we should be making sure that the experience that our customers are having is premium. And as you can see, um, HSBC customers definitely don't feel that way. So going back to the PDF then, is it really providing a great content experience? No, I mean, it's, it's static, it's boring, it's just it, nobody really enjoys reading a PDF. But what if that could change? What if we were able to kind of provide a fantastic experience for our customers with the content that we're putting out there? What if we could be the Monzo instead of HSBC? So I have another example for you with a customer that we worked with, and that's um, T. Rowe Price, uh, who are an asset, asset management firm. And basically the situation that they had was that they used to publish most of their content on their website in PDF format. And they noticed they weren't getting particularly good engagement rates with that content. So what they did is they switched to a far more engaging, interactive content um, environment. And what they noticed after they'd been doing that for a little while is that the people that went onto their website and viewed this content typically spent five times longer on their website afterwards. So what's quite interesting about this is by providing that really engaging experience, you're sort of like ticking that emotional box for people where they feel really good and positive about you and your brand. And that makes them want to spend more time with you on your website. So content, um, providing a great experience to your content is a really, really good way to do that. So the final example I'd like to have a look at um, is around measurement. And as our friend Lord Kelvin said, if you can't measure it, you can't improve it. And I think we all understand this as marketers, right? I mean, we are constantly being put under pressure by our businesses to deliver more, to prove the ROI on what we are doing. And unfortunately, the PDF really doesn't do measurement. So yeah, okay, you know how many people downloaded your content and you know who downloaded it. 
But that's kind of where it ends. You don't really know much beyond that. You don't know whether those people actually read the content. You don't know how long they read it for. You don't know which parts they read, which parts they didn't read. You don't know where they dropped off. You don't know whether they shared that content. I mean, that's a big black hole. We really don't know very much about our content. And I mean, in 2019, this is kind of criminal, really, when everyone and their dog is sending data. I mean, our cars are sending data to us, our watches. I mean, I have a smart watch and I'm obsessed with how many steps I'm doing each day, how many calories I'm burning. And our ovens can send data to our phones to let us know what temperature it's at. Our boilers send data, our light bulbs send data. And when we put this slide together, um, when we said everyone and their dog is sending data, we did wonder, like, do dogs send data? And the answer is yes, yes they do. So you can actually buy a collar for your dog which will start to track the behavior patterns of your dog and it will tell you things like if your dog isn't eating enough or if it's suddenly not exercising as much so it can kind of flag early signals of perhaps something wrong with the dog. And when we spend so much money and so much time creating our content but we don't actually get as much data back from that as, as our dog, so uh, interesting. So if our content doesn't tell us how it's doing, how do we improve it? And the answer is we don't, you know? I mean, if all we can go off is how many people have downloaded our content, um, that really doesn't tell us very much. It doesn't really tell us whether they found our content interesting, whether it was relevant to them, whether there was any intent behind that. And I'm sure many of us here have experienced situations in the past where um, you go onto a website, you fill in a form, you download a white paper, it's 70 pages long, you think, I'm never going to have time to read this, so you file it away, and you never do actually read that piece of content. But you might get an email the next day saying, hey, thanks so much for reading our white paper, and you didn't. So... What I would like to do now is look at one final, um, quite obvious parallel, actually, and that is Netflix. And I'm sure everybody here is very familiar with Netflix. And what they've been able to do is to really start to track exactly how people are engaging with their content. So they know what you're, re what you're watching. They know how long you watch it for. They know if you go back to watch it again. They know if there are other things you watch that are similar to that. And what that helps them to do is to be able to start creating content that they know you're going to love. They know before they go and create it exactly what their audience wants to see. So they're able to really tune their content so that it's most relevant to you. But if you don't have that data, that makes it really, really difficult to do. So what if we could see beyond the basics? What if we could understand what our customers wanted to be able to create content that was really tailored to their needs and their wants? So my final example of a customer that's done this is a customer called Willis Towers Watson, who are a risk management firm. And um, what they had, the situation they had, and this might resonate with some people in this room, is they launched an annual uh, report and they would typically, typically get a few thousand downloads off the back of this report. And the marketing team would hand those few thousand leads, leads over to salespeople. And the salespeople would look at them and say, I don't really know what to do with this data. Like, where do we even start with this list? And so they would just generally put those in the bin because they, they just didn't really know what to do with it. It didn't tell them anything. 
So what Willis Towers Watson did was they moved over to this more interactive way of creating content where they could actually track the analytics of exactly how people were consuming that information. And what this enabled the sales team to do was to start to say things like, we have this product we want to sell and we know we can sell it to people in this geography. So can you pull us a list of anybody based in Paris who's read the section on the North African energy market for five minutes or more? So suddenly the marketing team was able to say, sure, here are 50 leads, actual leads this time, of people who have read that section for five minutes or more. And the sales team actually then had something they were able to do something with. And it went one step further, in fact, where the marketing team were able to say, well, actually, you know what? We've discovered that there's this area in South America where people are really interested in this particular topic. And this wasn't even something the business was focused on. They didn't realize there was actually this opportunity in South America. So suddenly marketing is kind of taking a step forward and being able to say, right, we know more than you guys know about our audience. So that's really helping them to position themselves as a strategic partner for the business. And I think that's really all any marketer could possibly want. So this is what can be achieved if we start to measure our content. And I mean, I could really go on and on about this topic, and I'm very happy to if anyone wants to grab me um, in the break to tell you more about other things that I have against the PDF. But um, I won't go on any further today. Um, so I guess just to wrap up then, the question is, going back to British Cycling, can we do a, a David Brailsford? And the answer is absolutely yes, but we're not going to be able to do it on a penny farthing. Uh, we have to take advantage of the technology that's available to us, and we've got to upgrade that bike. And unfortunately, in the content world, the PDF very much is that penny farthing. There are just so many issues with it, and we shouldn't be relying on that as our way to publish content anymore. It's no good for production. It's a terrible content experience, and we can't measure it. So hopefully I've given you guys some food for thought. Um, I'm not sure if there's any time for questions, but if there is, I'm happy to take any. Otherwise, happy to speak to you afterwards. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining us this week on Virtual Roundtables Live. Make sure to visit our website www.virtualroundtables.com to learn more about upcoming webinars and events.